Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And I think that's, it's scary because that's putting your experience on external conditions and circumstances that you don't control. I mean, you look at celebrities today, famous people, they don't seem that happy, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's anytime you're you're reacting, and I think this is you know a, a sort of a, what we're seeing in society is that people are reacting to external conditions and circumstances all the time. And so they feel out of control. And and as you probably know, that sense of being in control is when you feel happy, regardless of what your circumstances are. So they're basically giving up their power um, to to external circumstances. And, and that's going to create a sense of being out of control. That's going to lead to feeling anxious and, and um, demotivated. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Renita, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Srini. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your story uh, by way of our mutual friend, Pam Slim, when I was doing research for my own book and I was going back through her book, Body of Work, and your name came up. And I remember making a mental note to myself thinking, okay, this sounds like a person who would uh, make for a fascinating interview. And then when I went and Googled you, I found out that you are a, a peak performance consultant. I said, this is absolutely somebody that I want to talk to. Uh, but before we get into all of your work, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Mm. Well, I grew up in Iowa, so in the Midwest. Um, my father is uh, American, Swedish-German, and my mother was Korean. So they met in Korea. And so I grew up in a bicultural household. Um, in the middle of Iowa, there were no Asians when I was growing up. Our family was pretty much it, and there was a Japanese librarian, I think. So, um, you know, that was kind of an interesting experience growing up, just kind of feeling uh, a little different. Um, I think that's kind of where I started feeling like an outsider, probably. And then to uh -huh. add on to that, I was, um, you know, a, a pretty serious about music from a young age. I started playing the piano. 
at, at, at when I was five. And so to add on to all of that, I was kind of like this music geek, always practicing and going off to lessons every week and missing school. So, uh-huh. uh, well, I definitely want to get into the music thing because there's so many questions from that, but, uh, how did your parents integrate the two cultures, uh, particularly when you lived in an environment in which there isn't necessarily reinforcement of either culture? Mm. Well, I think, yeah, I don't think they really did integrate. Uh, yeah. I found that a really valuable um, uh, environment, though, because I just kind of saw how it was possible to do things very differently. My parents were black and white, like the sun and the moon. And so I saw how you could handle situations in a t- in totally different ways. My mom was very fiery and 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 kind of volatile, and my dad was very stoic and calm. You know, in the exact same situation. So I think that really helped me understand first of all that there were many ways to to see a situation, different perspectives, and mm-hmm. I kind of just had options to to choose which I which ones I thought would work best best for me. Yeah. Why do you think that people uh, lose the capacity to, to see that a situation can be approached many ways? And I guess I'll give you more context. So I think that when I went to college, the idea was very clearly, these are the options in front of you. These are your choices. Choose them or do nothing else. And I wonder what happens to us that we don't see that ability or we lose that ability to see that any situation can be approached in so many different ways. Hmm. Well, I, I, I mean, I think we're on very much on autopilot. So we basically get programmed into certain beliefs at a young age. And if you start getting on the path of just doing, doing, doing without a lot of reflecting, then I think you develop a sort of autopilot where you just really want to be efficient about things. And, you know, exploring different perspectives is not efficient and it's uncomfortable and so I think that's probably, and if you're not used to that kind of psychological discomfort, then, um, you know, it feels wrong. And so you avoid it. And so you just kind of stick to the perspective either that you've always had, that's pretty much worked, that everyone else has. Yeah, I think that's what happens. I think for people to, to question a perspective is the only thing that causes them to question is when it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And that's why I think people start to are able to change their lives when they have some trauma or tragedy or major incident. Um, and that's, you know, as I'm sure, you know, people who have said, you know, some typically bad incident was actually the best thing that ever happened to them because it helped them wake up and it gave them the impetus to change and to see things differently. Mm hmm. So you mentioned that you were a musician, uh, piano playing geek, and I wonder, <laughs> what did you learn about performance uh, from your time as a musician? Because you and I share that in common. I just happened to play the tuba, which is far less versatile and probably a lot easier <laughs> than the piano. Uh, what are the things that stuck with you from the piano experience that have impacted your life and the work oh, that you do today? Uh, so much. I mean, I, I really feel fortunate that I was able to grow up learning how to focus. So... I was practicing three, four, sometimes five hours a day. Um, And so I learned how to, I guess, I mean, obviously discipline, but also this ability to find enjoyment in things that are not that inherently interesting and just to really enjoy the process of getting better 
and not not a lot better, even just a little bit better, because you know, with classical music, you're often not making huge leaps of progress. It's very incremental. But um, I think the joy, if, if you can find the joy of just those incremental uh, signs of progress, then that's such a great lesson for life because there's very little in life that's this huge sort of quantum leap. It's all pretty incremental. Um, yeah, and I think people get caught up in waiting for, for a big change. And um, so then you're kind of spending a lot of your life just waiting for things. Mm-hmm. So you have this perspective, uh, both from the, the standpoint of being a, you know, a peak performance expert, as well as having been uh, a piano player growing up. What would you tell parents who are listening uh, about motivation and their children? Mm, that's a tough one. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> my mom was, you know, she was kind of a tiger mom and she really um, was very strict I had two sisters, so all three of us were playing instruments, practicing multiple hours a day. And, um, you know, we didn't feel like we had a choice. So, you know, I think there could have been a way to make it a little more enjoyable. Um, Uh She was was very outcome-oriented, actually, in terms of, you know, she would get very upset if we didn't win competitions, and and she was was very outcome-oriented. so, you know, I don't, I'm not really in a position, I'm not a parent to tell people, to tell parents what to do. I think the, I mean, the basic advice is to be a role model. Um, so, you know, lead your, your kids to things that they, they, they show interest in, um, teach them about discipline and the value of effort. Um, but then maybe see that there's a point where they're really not, um, getting, you know, enjoyment from a certain activity, definitely not for something past, um, you know, a certain point, which I can't really say what that would be. Yeah. Did you ever feel that you were not enjoying this and that you wanted to give up? Well, it's funny. My mom, you know, would sometimes she would say, she was very clever. She would say, all right, fine, then you don't have to play the piano. And then we would say, oh, no, no, I want to practice. I want to practice. So, I think we just sometimes uh, revolted a little bit against the, the extreme <laughs> rigor of it, but fundamentally uh-huh. we didn't want to give up studying music. Yeah. So, so how do you get from, you know, growing up uh, in Iowa, being a, a musician to, to being uh, the person that you are today? Like how, what's the trajectory been to get you here? How in the world did you end up <laughs> being a peak performance expert? Very unplanned. Yeah. Somehow that's a, a common story here with yeah. people I talk to. Well, I mean, the dream, the initial dream was to go to Juilliard and become a concert pianist. So it was very much a linear plan. Um, so I did go to Juilliard. I, I left Iowa when I was 16, very happily, and um, went to Juilliard. And then my second year, um, my teacher wasn't very encouraging. And, and I just started to feel like the life of a pianist wasn't going to be very interesting it was a very one-dimensional, um, you know, if you're serious, you really have to spend a lot of time in the practice room just to learn all the repertoire. The pia- piano probably has more repertoire than any other instrument. And so I started to see that I was going to be spending 10 hours a day in a practice room if I really wanted to be world-class. So uh, that combined with, um, you know, just sort of discouragement from my teacher, I, I, I decided to not pursue music 
And I graduated early from Juilliard and then everything just kind of unraveled from there. Like, you know, I'd been thinking about being a pianist for um, 15 years. And so I had no plan at that point. And so what I did was <laughs> I went to law school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I was like, well, I, I, I can't be a doctor. I haven't taken any science courses. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I decided to go to law school, uh, went for one year in, in Denver and was, that was pretty much the most miserable year of my life. I, uh, really just combined with giving up my dream and, and the, the nature of the first year of law school, which is, is so difficult, um, I decided just, okay, you know, let's just take a break. I was kind of ahead of the game because I'd graduated early from high school and from Juilliard. So I was 20 years old. I said, all right, just take a year off. And uh, I decided to come to Europe. Um, so came to Europe and just kind of, again, I didn't really have a plan. Landed in Belgium at a friend's place. And I was traveling with a friend, actually. And so we had a basic plan. We had a friend in Belgium, Juilliard friend in, in France. And then she was Italian, so she had relatives in Italy. So we ended up in Rome. And one day um, I was at the English language bookstore in Rome, the Lion something bookstore. And there was this notice saying um, this, this Italian family was looking for an au pair type for their 14-year-old to, to practice English with. And just like that, I met with them and, and we just hit it off. And I said, you know what, I think I'm just going to stay here in Europe for a while. And I ended up living with them for about nine months. Um, you know, just basically being a, a big sister to this 14 year old who already spoke English really well. And, and so I went from having the worst year of my life to having an amazing year, just living in Rome with this Italian family, studying Italian, um, it was amazing. Um, yeah, so then from there, I came back to the U.S., tried law school again, uh, made this definitive decision, okay, this is not for me. And I had really enjoyed living overseas. I, I love different cultures and, and just the kind of the spice that it brings to, to daily routines. So um, one day I was just driving along and it popped into my head, why don't, why don't you go to Japan? Um, I still don't know where that came from. I wasn't, you know, watching movies or anything. Um, and so I told my uh, parents that I wanted to go to Japan. And again, it was really simple. My, my dad, you know, was working at John Deere, middle of Iowa. Like I said, there weren't many Asians there. But um, John Deere happened to be having this joint venture with Hitachi. And um, so my dad asked one of the Japanese um is one of his Japanese colleagues, you know, if he had any ideas about me going to Japan. And the guy said, um, oh, well, she could live with, with us, with my family. And so within two or three months, I was um, flying to Japan to live with this family. And um, that started a great uh, couple of years of, again, just living in a different culture, learning a completely different language, um, and, and so it was a combination of studying. And after a couple of months, I, I put an ad in the local, you know, kind of newsletter or newspaper that I was teaching piano. 
And uh, a bunch of Japanese housewives jumped on that because the Juilliard name was very um, uh, well respected there. And so I had a bunch of uh, uh, piano students. And so for um, about two years, I was I had this idyllic lifestyle of, of studying Japanese. Um, I had a cultural visa, so I was studying all the different Japanese um, culture, you know, kimono, aikido, uh, calligraphy, and and then teaching these these wonderful students until I um, I got a job in Tokyo, and then I moved to Tokyo and and started working there in um, an investor relations firm where I actually got to speak Japanese and read and write uh, on a regular basis, which was my my original goal in going to to to, to uh, Japan. I wanted to learn Japanese very seriously so I could use it in business. So from there I heard about a business school uh called INSEAD which is uh here in France and um so I um I was kind of ready to leave Japan. I'd been there for almost seven years and um uh so I I came to, to France to go to business school with the idea of, of staying in, in France. But um, that didn't work out uh, after I graduated. So I actually ended up going back to New York. And um, this is when all the dot-coms were coming up. So I just started working in a, a dot-com, um, actually founded by two Juilliard graduates. So uh, that was amazing, just um, you know, kind of being at the beginning of, I don't know if the beginning per se. Well, it was the beginning of the whole internet um, technology movement and being a part of that. And, and I moved on to a couple of other dot-coms until finally I realized that being in the business world, I wasn't really using um, all my skills. You know, I found that I was always coaching on the job. Uh, it was just something that came really naturally to me. I'm just so curious about people. I would just ask questions. Um, and there was one time that was particularly noteworthy because I was talking with a colleague who had uh, two bosses. She was reporting to two different bosses. One was in the UK, one was in New York, and she wasn't getting along with either of them. And we just happened to um, be on a business trip together and just kind of got into a, a more personal uh, conversation. And, you know, I really don't even remember what I said. It was probably something like, well, you know, maybe your boss thinks this, you know, I kind of just gave her a different perspective on, on the situation that she was um, kind of complaining about. And um, the next morning I got this email from her boss and he said, I don't know what you said to her, but um, I got this email from her apologizing for being such a, you know, a jerk all these months. And I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's really interesting that she was able to change her behavior based on, on that conversation. Um, so, so, you know, I think that was just kind of an indication of how um, naturally coaching kind of came to me. And um, so I started my coaching business. And uh, for the last 10 years, I've been, you know, figuring out my um, the area that I really want to focus on and, and just honing in on my methodologies and, and philosophies. Wow. Okay. So we will get deeply into all of your methodologies and philosophies, which is really what I think got my attention. But uh, where I want to start is is back with that moment at Juilliard. 
where you decided to, to you know get out of Juilliard and go to law school. How do you reconcile the loss of identity that occurs when you've done something like spend 15 years of your life dedicated to this idea that you're going to become a professional musician, musician and then it goes away? And what role does something like that play in people's ability to perform at the top of their game? Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's this that was such a seminal moment because I, I it was such an anchor in my life music and now I, I felt really lost like I remember <laughs> I mean I was in the fetal position multiple times you know just kind of literally lost I had no no attachment to where I was going um so eventually um, and I think this really comes from my parents. Um, they're just very resilient and, and stoic. They, they're really resourceful and they just accept situations. Um, neither one of them ever complained. And so I feel very fortunate that I didn't grow up in an environment where there was much complaining. You know, you just kind of saw the way things were and then you figured things out and you adapted. So, um, you know, I think my parents kind of, um, I wouldn't say they coddled me. I mean, they were, they were understanding, but you know, at a certain point they were kind of like, come on, you know, get a grip and, and we're going to move on now or it's time to move on. And, um, so I think that was just my attitude I, was, I just decided, all right, that's, that's not going to happen. So, so what's next? And um, that's such a key skill to have in peak performance because, um, you know, peak performance, the peaks don't happen um, very often. That's kind of by definition. So the ability to handle when things don't go well, that's really where you demonstrate, um, quote unquote, peak performance. Um, it's your ability to recover from setbacks and mistakes that makes you a champion. It's not how much, uh -huh. how well you perform when conditions are ideal. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. With people that you work with, what are the keys for them to develop that capacity to bounce back from setbacks or failures or things that don't go the way they hoped? Mm. Well, I think it's, um, I mean, I think it's, uh, for starts with a decision where you just say, all right, it happened. Now what? Um, and, and I think you want, you kind of want to start to manage your thinking. So, you know, typically you're going to have a bit of a, um, a, a period where you're just kind of not able to move forward, but you want to put a boundary around it. So depending what it is, you know, you, it's either, all right, you have until five o'clock today, or you have, in, you know, three more days, or it doesn't really matter what the period is, but being very, just kind of setting boundaries for yourself. All right, this is how much time you have to, to kind of get over this, and then we're going to move on. Um, so kind of negotiating with yourself and then just making a decision. And it's interesting. Once you make a decision that you're going to do something, then your brain is like, okay. And then it looks around and it starts to see, you know, options and opportunities instead of all the reasons why you want, you could be miserable. So it's, I, I, everything starts with a decision. Mm, wow. Okay. So we're going to get further and further into this entire framework for peak performance. And I appreciate that you said that the peaks aren't where you spend a lot of time. So I want to talk about that. But before we get uh, further down this path, one of the things I, I wonder is you've been exposed to multiple cultures over the course of your career. You spent time in Italy, you spent time in Japan, you grew up in Iowa. So you, you've kind of had this uh, amalgamation of all these different cultural influences. And I wonder, what are the how, how does success, uh, how is success defined differently across cultures from what you've seen? Mm. Well, as you probably know, in the Asian culture, it's, it's very, um, very defined. Even now it's surprising to me how many Asian, um, you know, Asians considered important to be a doctor or a lawyer or, 
you know, an engineer, there's, it's, things are very defined in Asian culture. I, I mean, I think across cultures, it, it's, 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 it's very much aligned with, with status. So I, I don't know how much, um, you know, difference there is across cultures, as long as it's, you know, the signs of status might be different according to the culture. Um, but I, I really think that's, that's, you know, still very prevalent now is, is, is status. I don't know if I answered that question well. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally get that. I mean, my sister's a doctor. I grew up Indian, so I get the status thing. Uh, that, that makes all the sense in the world. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears. We kind of started talking about bouncing back from setbacks, but I'd love for you to walk us through the framework for how you take somebody from where they're at to peak performance and what it looks like and how they sustain that over time. So how do I take someone from where they're at to, through to peak performance? performance? Well, the way I'm going to answer that is I, I am focusing more and more on uh, what I call micro training. Uh-huh. It's the, because it really is the tiny steps. Um, so the ability to identify that first micro goal is, is a real skill that I, I want people to develop. And um, I find that it's hard for people to think small. They, 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 I don't know, there's just this need for drama to come up with these big dramatic goals. And <laughs> which you probably yeah. know makes it really hard to get started. And, and that's why there's so much procrastination. So, uh-huh. you know, I'll often say to people, all right, what's your micro goal? And they'll still come up with something too big. And I'll break it down for them. You know, you know, someone says, all right, I want to get five clients um, for this program that I'm, I'm building. Um, you know, I can break that down into 20 micro goals. You know, the first thing is just to draft an email or maybe find someone's email. Um, so for me, that that ability to to find the smallest, tiny step that I can take has been really helpful in in paradoxically reaching peak performance. So for me, for example, you know, when I, I still play the piano and I still, um, not recently, but in recent years, I have competed in, in competitions. And so I would, um, basically have a goal of practicing three hours, um, a day. And just the idea of having to practice, sit down and practice for three hours was so daunting. It it would take me half an hour just to get to the piano and so I realized I needed just to do something to break that inertia. And so for me, it was just opening the lid of the piano. Um, so, I mean, this might sound like it's far from peak performance, but you can't start mm-hmm. aiming for peak performance from the very beginning. You know, it's like if you're climbing a mountain, you got to figure out how are you going to make that first mile and break through the inertia and create momentum and figure out what your process uh, goals are. What are the things that you need to be doing every day that if you do them every day, you will reach a certain outcome. So let's look at this through one concrete example. For example, let's mm-hmm. say you have a goal to earn a certain amount of money or increase your income. Uh, you know, you kind of talked about five clients, which aligns to this. I mean, if, if I were to say, okay, I want to earn X amount of money, how would you get me through that? How would you help me to find the micro goals that lead to that? Well, so I, I guess it would depend how you wanted to make money. I mean, if, we, if I were working with a salesperson, for example, and they wanted to make a certain amount of money um, in the next quarter, 
um, I, I really like to systematize things. So we'll be coming up with the process goals. So how many, um, you know, calls do you need to make? Um, how many, you know, how, what's your conversion rate? So not to get too much into a sales conversation, sure, yeah. but what are the habits that you need to develop that will um, translate into that goal? So, you know, for me, I actually, I did sales for, um, for two years. I sold health insurance because I realized I didn't know how to do sales and in, in starting my coaching business. Um, so my discipline and my focus really helped me out there because when I said, all right, I got to do 50 cold calls, I figured out what were the best times to do that. I sat down and I figured what would be the quickest way to get started um, making these calls. So, you know, a lot of discipline comes from just how do you break through that inertia and start to create momentum. And um, mm -hmm. so as long as you have that and then you're, you're doing that, you have the right habits, those two together are, are a good recipe. Hmm. So it's interesting because I was just speaking to James Clear before uh, mm. you and I got in the call here. He was talking about atomic habits and and literally how these little things that we do repeatedly lead to these huge changes down the road. He said that habits are basically the compound interest of mm -hmm. self improvement. Yeah, yeah, and and I found so, you know with sales, it, it, it's 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 interesting because uh, what I'm understanding more and more is how much our biology drives our behavior. So emotions are just chemicals. And so we can become, um, and we do become addicted to certain emotional patterns or, or, you know, not addicted necessarily in a bad way, but we get programmed. We were programming ourselves. So I found that once I decided I was going to do cold calls on Tuesday evenings and Saturday mornings, sorry, not cold, I was calling leads, but so Tuesday mm -hmm. evenings and Saturday mornings, my body just kind of was set up that way. And then after a while, I didn't even have to think about it. I just got my paper. I got my computer. I got my iced coffee, right? I just, my body was programmed to do that. I think I'm, I'm kind of like that with the sitting down in the morning to write at this point, I've done it for so long that it feels yeah. off. Like I literally cup of coffee, pen in hand, and it, my natural instinct is to read and write. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really getting your body, your body programmed. And then you don't have to. Yeah. It. So we live in a culture that is incredibly outcome oriented. Yeah. Uh, so how do you balance that with what you're talking about? Because I think that, you know, most of us will see what you're, will hear what you're saying. It's like, that's great. Ultimately the, the idea behind this is that I'm trying to achieve some sort of outcome. And yet, you have all these sort of messages about not being attached to outcomes. So, you know, you see a job description where one of the bullet points is results oriented. And then you have somebody tell you that, oh, you know, be outcome focused rather than results oriented. So how do you balance those two things? Mm -hmm. Well, something I'm starting to focus on more is experiences. So instead of having a goal, I ask, so what is the peak experience that you want to have? So for me, that shifts from some circumstance or some condition to the feeling that you want to have. Um, so it might look the same from the outside, you know, you, you create a million dollars, but it's what, what is the peak experience you want to have? What is the moment that you're going to know that you have achieved what you want to achieve? Um, so that for me is a helpful shift because then you have to think through the exercise requires that you think more through, all right, what do I want to feel? Why do I, why will this goal help me 
um, help me feel what I want to feel. Um, and then what I'm realizing also is that you can just start to feel that way now. So if you want to feel like you are someone who is able to generate a million dollars, then you just have to sort of reverse engineer and think about what are the things that I would be doing now if I were able, if I were someone who generated a million dollars and, and surprisingly, you know, a lot of those habits you could actually be doing now. And so what I realized is most of the time, and it, it's kind of hard to describe this on audio, but typically we, we're at a certain point and we're looking at a point over there and we're thinking, okay, when I get to that point over there, then I, I will be happy. I'll be satisfied. And then so you spend all those all those little steps until you get to that point uns, unsatisfied, quote unquote, unsatisfied. Whereas if you decide, all right, that's the peak experience I want to have. And I'm just going to start trying to feel like I have that experience starting now. Then all those steps leading to that peak experience are are more like that experience that you actually want to have that feeling. I'm not sure if that's making sense. Yeah, you know, it, it totally does. Uh, where do people go wrong with all of this? So uh, the, I guess the real question is, when you work with people, what do you think it is that separates the people who actually produce a result from working with you from the ones who don't? The ones that produce results from the ones that don't. So it's going to, I think it's going to be a little redundant, but it's the ones that really enjoy the process of, of the growth and the learning. Uh They have to enjoy that, that process of, you know, making an effort, trying different things, having things not work and just not caring that they didn't get the outcome that they wanted. I think that's the real difference Um, because then that's, those are the people that keep trying because if you're outcome oriented, then the first or second time that something doesn't happen the way you want, then you're, then you think, all right, maybe this wasn't meant to be, or all of a sudden you're looking for excuses. Um, and, you know, obstacles are just a reason or a way for you to, 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 to kind of prove that you really want something. And, and often they give us clarity. Um, if, if things are too comfortable, then we don't get really clear enough or, or, um, yeah, clear enough to really change what we're doing. We'll just, you know, kind of just stay in autopilot and continue what we're doing and not make changes because change is, is so uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Yeah. I heard Susan David say once in her Ted talk that discomfort is the price of admission for a meaningful life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we don't do a good job in our society of teaching people how to, uh, be with discomfort, whether it's just the psychological discomfort of not knowing something or not being good at something. You know, I'm, I'm in France now trying to learn French. Um, and it's, it's really uncomfortable to be an adult um, and, and sound like a child probably or, or worse. <laughs> you know? But I, I just decided I don't care. I really want to learn how to speak French or I want to speak to French people in their language. Um, and so that, that desire, and, and when I lived here before, when I was going to business school, I didn't have that desire. That's why I didn't really learn French when I was here before. So things have changed this time. And it, again, it just came down to a decision where I decided I am going to do this 
And it's really uncomfortable sometimes when I don't understand someone and I have to either ask them again or, you know, they, they correct me or, and what I'm finding though, is I I'm getting used to that. It's, it's something that it's kind of like, just like a, a little irritation that I'm, you know, like if you wear a shirt, that's kind of irritating, but you know that it's irritating and, and it's, it's not life threatening and it's worthwhile. So I think if people could just learn to be a little more uncomfortable, they would start to see that the reward will outweigh that, that discomfort. Hmm. Wow. Well, so we've been talking about this, uh, both from sort of a, a tactical and mindset and psychological perspective. And, and I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about it from a biological perspective, uh, because People, I think, often see things like the fact that Elon Musk works 120-hour work week, and they mix up causation and correlation. And as a result, you have people who are really, really pushing themselves to unsustainable levels of, of performance. I know because I've tried it firsthand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder, you know, your, what does your work show about this from a biological perspective? Like, you know, when you look at things like sleep, diet, exercise, all of that, because I can't imagine that those things aren't also an integral component of this yeah well i mean i think people get addicted to stress they get addicted to the adrenaline rush of deadlines um i mean we just get addicted to all kinds of things so it it's it's really hard to stop working if you're actually used to working hard um, so that's why I've noticed, you know, this this trend of people not able to take care of themselves. Um, I mean, for me, I've never I've always prioritized self-care. I've never sacrificed my sleep or my diet or my fitness. Um, I don't know where that came from, but I, I guess just fundamentally, I, I felt like I I could not sacrifice that. And so. In many cases, my clients, they just need permission to take care of themselves, to, to sleep more, to, to take time to work out, to, um, you know, to, to read a book. Um, it's, it's crazy. I think, uh, that people have kind of lost perspective on, um, and I think it's hard when you see everyone else around you doing things and, and, you are making this sort of false correlation between how hard someone works and the results they've produced. Um, but I, I firmly believe that if people would take time to actually reflect and to synthesize more and make connections between um, what they're seeing, they would actually um, have better ideas that could help them get to their results quicker. Um, they're, I, I think they're working in a very linear way typically. So putting in a certain number of hours to get from A to B, whereas if they would just sit and reflect, they might come up with an idea where they wouldn't even have to go to B at all and they could just skip to D. Wow. What role do you think that uh, social media plays in uh, amplifying this sense of striving and this necessity to like constantly be working? Mm, it's awful. Yeah. I, I mean, because I feel it too when I I go on social media. I mean, it's the comparison factor, I think. So I'm doing a lot of study around, um, uh, you know, the neuroscience of, of social threats, 
where we don't really have physical threats in our, in our environment. Um, so our brain now is registering threats in our social environment and reacting with fight or flight. Um, so I think every time people go on social media, they're, they're in fight or flight. They're in survival mode because status, you know, when your status is threatened, which is pretty much every other post on Instagram or Facebook, right? Somebody just, you know, bought a new car or they just um, got promoted or they just got married or they're engaged or they had a baby or all these milestones. And, and now you feel like your status is lower. You're running out of time. Um, you feel like an outsider. These are all fight or flight uh, reactions. So, yeah, I think, first of all, it's helpful to be aware and, and I mean, as you know, got to control that, control the habit, set a time limit, yeah. um, understand that you're kind of going into a minefield when you go on, on social media. Um, I've, I've never come off social media feeling, you know, alive and energized. <laughs> okay. That is, that is totally a tweetable moment. Uh, I, I asked the question because it's something that's really been on my mind a lot lately. I talked to Danielle Laporte about it. And even uh, when Jay Bayer interviewed me for the Social Pros podcast, which, you know, they're kind of sort of authorities in the field of social media, in their questionnaire, they said, what excites you most about social? I said, the number of people who are talking about the fact that we should start <laughs> using it less. Yeah. But the thing that really, I think when, when I had that conversation with him, in addition to what you've just said is, I thought to myself, I said, you know, I told him, I said, here's what I think social media does. So David Brooks, uh, who's this amazing mm -hmm. author and, and columnist for the New York Times, wrote this beautiful book called A Road to Character. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't read it, anybody listening, I highly recommend it. And one of the things he talks about is this idea of resume values versus eulogy values. And I, I don't remember who it was. Somebody told me once something like 40% of high school students now want to be famous. Mm -hmm. And it's ridiculous because we live in a world where you can be famous for being famous. And I think that in addition to all the things you just mentioned, social media amplifies a prioritization of resume values over eulogy values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's – it's scary because that's putting your experience on external conditions and circumstances that you don't control. I mean, you look at celebrities today, famous people. They don't seem that happy. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's anytime you're you're reacting. And I think this is, you know, a, a sort of a, what we're seeing in society is that people are reacting to external conditions and circumstances all the time. And so they feel out of control. And and as you probably know, that sense of being in control is when you feel happy, regardless of what your circumstances are. So they're basically giving up their power um, to, to external circumstances. And, and that's going to create a sense of being out of control. That's going to lead to feeling anxious and, and, um, demotivated. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, this has been really, really, really fascinating. Uh, I, I kind of, I knew I had an instinct when I, when I read your story, I thought this is going to be a really interesting conversation. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all, all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What is it that makes someone unmistakable? Um, I, don't, yeah, I don't know if I can come up with an original answer to this, but I think it's really just, there 
it's really takes courage to be, you know, who you are and to create yourself as a channel to let the true creative force flow through you and to trust that and to, and actually just to develop the capacity to let that creative force flow through you. And I think if we can, if you can do that, then you will be unmistakable. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Yeah, I think the best place is just to start with uh, my main website, which is renitacalhorn.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.